Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. Thanks for tuning in to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. It's a big show we have for you today. We have a couple of guests coming in. We're going to be talking about greening the environment, the city environment, I think, more than anything else. And we're going to be talking about that elusive comet. Sky Spirits, clear the skies, please. We've only got a couple of days for this one. In the studio with me is uh, Dr. Stacey. Good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. How, How are, are you? you? I'm really are well. Are you actually a doctor now? Is it through? Is it done or oh, just submitted? It's um, under examination. Ah, done. Uh, yeah, I'd call that done. <laughs> yeah, it's done. Oh, That's it. I love it. It's great. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's Lovely good to, to see you. Good to see you. We have uh, Gracie on the line all the way from Texas. Good morning, Gracie. Well, good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon. How are you all doing? <laughs> We're all doing well. And uh, hey, what's is it cold over there at the moment? You guys are having a big... I saw some snow. Yes, I was trapped in my house for a week last week, uh, and it wasn't snow. It was not snow. It was ice. Oh, ice. So, yeah, uh, yeah nobody could really get out, but wow. uh, it was sunny today, so everything's yeah. back to normal. Well, we're trapped in our houses too, but it's mainly because when we don't expect this kind of cool weather in summer and we don't know what to do. <laughs> it's the middle of February. It's normally like 40 degrees. I had to wear a jumper last week when it was, what, Thursday? It was just too cold. A jumper? You have acclimatized to our environment. 20 years, mate. You have to... <laughs> you, you try to be understood in the place you live. You know? I love it. I love it. It's great. Well, uh, we're going to jump straight into some news because uh, we've got a lot on on the show today. It's a busy one. Dr. Stacey, do you want to start us off? What's happening? Yeah, I'll kick us off. I thought I'd just ask everyone to think back to the last time that they uh, prepared a manuscript to publish or maybe a grant submission or a, perhaps, Dr. Ray, a, um, a business case. Mm. And oh, that's just reminding me of blissful experiences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, it's not an uh, insignificant undertaking. It takes a bit of time yeah. starting off with a blank piece of paper. You've got to make sure that you're sort of conforming with submission guidelines, you know, putting your structure out, filling up the content, making sure it's, you know, cohesive and tells a compelling story. It's, it's, it's hard work, you know, yeah. it takes a bit of yeah. time. Now, um, just cast your mind back perhaps, oh, well, um, on the other side of the coin, uh, if you were an editor at a journal or perhaps an examiner, what would you think if this seemingly sophisticated manuscript before you was actually written by a robot? Well, in some cases, it might be better than what some humans do, so I might, I might feel relaxed. Yeah, well... Or disturbed. <laughs> or disturbed. Yeah. Well, well, I think both... If, if it's a grant fair. on robotics, I think I'm torn. I think, uh, <laughs> I think I might be okay with that. Yeah, yeah that's good. I like that. Um, well, welcome to the future. We can now use artificial intelligence platforms to help uh, write our manuscripts. So... Um, you may have heard a bit about this in the news lately. So ChatGPT is one particular platform. Um, it's a relatively new artificial intelligence um, web-enabled platform um, developed by a Californian company, OpenAI. But it has stirred some controversy in the scientific mm. literature of late. Um, a couple of weeks ago, ChatGPT first appeared as an author in a, uh, in a, uh, a paper. And um, Nature, the, the journal Nature, have done some digging and they've found actually four instances of an artificial intelligence um, uh, uh, 
platform um, being listed as an author, either in a published paper or a preprint. And so now publishers around the world um, within the scientific sort of uh, field are now scrambling to develop their own policies about how best to handle this if someone was to put um, uh, an AI platform as a, as a co-author on their manuscript. Mm. So interesting. it is interesting. I mean, I think, you know, we, um, advances in technology mean that we've got to sort of keep up with, with this and, and, and come up with yeah. a position. Nature was actually very quick to come up with a position and said um, these sorts of um, platforms don't uh, meet authorship guidelines. Um, and, uh, you know, they... <laughs> Some of the people writing don't either, frankly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but, you know, they can't be accountable for the study findings. They can't yeah, be yeah. responsible. And so they said, listen, if people are using these um, technologies to support the development of the manuscript, perhaps put it in the methods section or, you know, acknowledge it mm. elsewhere. Mm. But, um, you know, uh, I think that makes sense to me. Uh, but, you know, the, this particular company, so ChatGPT, you know, it's underpinned by this large language model. So this is a machine learning model. Um, draws in and learns from data and produces quite coherent and sophisticated uh, writing. I had a go of it yesterday and uh, I asked it to, um, you know, write me an abstract in the style of nature medicine, focusing on COVID-19 excess mortality. And it comes out with this, you know, pretty bland and generic yeah. uh, piece of prose. But, you know, it was in the right structure. Um, it had little sections for you to, um, you know, implement your own results, uh, input your own results into it. It even tries to give it a little bit of interpretive text at the end. Yeah. Um, so, you you know, like it's not without its challenges. Nature did a little bit of digging about, um, you know, quite complex questions questions um, does require more sort of a deep subject expertise mm. and that the generation of pros from these sorts of platforms can um, contain, you know, inaccuracies, biases or misleading information. So, you know, they argue that, you know, human verification is key. And yeah. um, But, you know, I think it could be quite useful, um, you know, for people starting out with that blank piece of paper needing to put some bones in, you know, a bit of a structure and, um, you know, and, and make yeah. sure that you're, you know, checking it. Yeah. So I think it's fascinating. I mean, for one thing, we have to immediately assume that there is bias in the AI itself because it would have been programmed by certain individuals, probably from certain cultural backgrounds. So there's automated bias in there that you have to be careful of. But uh, I know a couple of lecturers who are, you know, Universities are freaking out over this because it means that yeah. students may be able to falsify, you know, submission documents, all sorts of things. Um, but I know a couple of lecturers who've immediately grabbed onto this and said, okay, I'm going to use this in my teaching to help me teach what makes up a good essay and what doesn't. So just assuming it's going to happen and going into their students and saying, okay, first thing we're going to do with this assignment is we're going to get this AI to write it, yeah. write, write an example, and then we're going to go through it and look at what works and what doesn't. And then you're going to do your versions, which, of course, will be much better. So, you know, engaging with it, you know, realizing it's not going away, I think is something that people have to do. I wish they'd use the AI to come up with a better name for it, though. (laughs) (laughs) I keep saying chat GDP, which I know is wrong, (laughs) but I can never remember the order of the letters. I know. Yeah, I was was saying GTP a lot. Yeah, I noticed every time you said it, you looked down. Yeah. Because you're just checking. (laughs) I'm just checking. You've got to get it right. Yeah, Yeah, but I think that's sensible, you know, to engage with it. It's a bit like, you know, when the internet sort of, yeah. took off and we're you know lecturers and and teachers are all going oh my god i'm going to become redundant yes yeah. people are going to be able to teach themselves but um yeah in fact know. people seem to learn learn less these days because it's always on hand right you can ask like i think of my kids sometimes and when they're studying i think you can ask the world's knowledge 
for an answer to your question here. Mm. It's amazing. Years ago when I used to teach physics, people come up and say, I didn't understand that. So what they'd do is I would Google three different explanations other than mine and send it to them. Because for some reason, mine didn't gel with that particular student. So I'd say, here's other explanations that might work better with you. Invariably, one of them would work. Yeah, right. And it was just a nice way of saying, it's out there. Yeah. Seek it. You know, I'm, I'm not the only way to learn it. There's yeah. other ways to learn let, this stuff. So. Let me Google that for you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Gracie, what do you got for us? Yes. So have any of you been to the Galapagos? Sadly, not yet. No. no not no, yet. I haven't. Would have loved to see a Galapagos iguana. They're pretty awesome. Yes. So you may be able to if you travel to Houston, Texas this year. <laughs> oh, boy. So the Houston Zoo is actually opening their own Galapagos exhibit. It's going to open in April this year. Wow. What does that mean? So you can pay basically to see. Uh, I imagine they're going to have giant tortoises, iguanas that Ray is talking about. Uh, penguins, jellyfish that are unique to the Galapagos area. So I'm sure we're probably taking some things from the Galapagos. I don't really know how that's how that's going to work. They haven't really disclosed much about like the specifics yet. Um, but we'll see how that works. Hmm. And is this going to be a large exhibit? I mean, I know at uh, Melbourne Zoo here, a lot, a lot of the exhibits are being transformed into much larger settings that are, you know, more more appropriate for, you know, it's never good to cage animals up. But if you if you are going to do it, at least do it in a way that is, you know, as large as possible. Yes, I know. I was looking at the schematic for their plan that they have online, and it's going to be part of the largest area of the Houston Zoo, which the Houston Zoo is already pretty large. So uh, I thought that was pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. I'll keep you updated. Maybe I'll go in April yeah. when it opens. Go and check it out. Um, I'm not, yes. And then I'm not sure if y'all have been keeping up with the Dallas Zoo saga that's been happening. So at the Dallas Zoo, they lost a cloud leopard uh, and actually had to lost it close yes they lost it like they didn't know where it was it wasn't in its cage so <laughs> they had to close down the zoo um and then a lot of police basically had to come and try to find it and uh, long story short they found it hiding somewhere near the cage a few hours later but then a few weeks later so recently they actually also lost two monkeys so i feel like it's like an inside job at this point someone's letting out these animals so <laughs> Well, you know, we'll maybe maybe the loss of the two monkeys is related to the loss of a very substantial predator. It's, it's, yeah. It sounds like a Disney movie. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's always better it totally when they does. lose a few humans. I you know, I'm okay with that, but <laughs> the well, you know, good on the uh good on the leopard for keeping away. Yeah, you know. they did find the monkeys by the way. Oh, so good. the cloud leopard didn't eat them. So, oh. yeah. Oh, well. well, you know. They found all the animals. Yeah, they, <laughs> something tells me that zoo needs better locks. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's it for me. I'm all for a bit of free range there. It's good. Send in your kids. Yes. We'll take care of them. No problem at all. I'm sure that, yeah, there's a tragedy waiting to happen there if they don't sort that out. Dr. Ray, what do you Sorry. got for us? Well, I'm excited. Galapagos iguanas are just really cool animals. Anyway, um, yeah, what do I have? So I was reading this news story from uh, several space agencies had meetings in november at the end of last year and they were just reporting on it and it was just an interesting question it was what time is it on the moon and i thought i don't know i don't is there a moon time and as it turns out there isn't a moon time (laughs) and um and so normally what happens is there's universal planet time or utc and so Mm -hmm. when we have a mission to the moon or somebody there's a spacecraft on the moon they this kind of 
connect it back to the Earth planet time. But this is becoming a bigger issue because there is the um, GPS for the moon plan. So by 2030, they're planning to launch the global satellite navigation system for the moon. Because they want to start to put in a positioning system in the moon because there's so many more we're, – we're looking at so many more planned missions on the moon. And when you start to have more, more spacecraft there, ground vehicles, mm-hmm. and even people, coordination becomes important. And so time comes into play in a couple different places. So first of all, satellites have to have timing as well. Remember, this is a positioning system. So the time it takes for signals to get to and from the moon is actually how the positioning system works. So all of those satellites will have to have their own atomic clocks. And so there's a couple things that come into play. One of them is relativity. Mm. Um, that because the gravitational field of the moon is different, its rotation is different as well, that actually in 24 hours, the moon's about 56 microseconds faster. So how do you decide if you're going to make a lunar clock the it'll look faster to us on earth than it will there and so that's one of the things that that they're debating about and there's plans for actually locating a lunar clock which is going to be three atomic clocks on the moon and then some algorithm to average them out um because of the rotation and the distribution of gravity on the moon there's a little bit of variability and then there's just other things like are there going to be time zones how are you going to define a day? Because if you day, do a day as solar noon to solar noon on the moon, that's 29 and a half Earth days because of how the rotation works. Wow. And, and, and so yeah. I'm like, really? Do, do, is this the problem we need to solve? And, and, and apparently it is because planning for space missions takes so long. And if the, right now NASA and the ESA have, have two different projects about uh, navigation, one's called Moonlight, the other one's... The, the, the European one's called Moonlight. Like, that's a good name for a navigation system project. NASA's the Lunar Communication Relay and Navigation System. So less imaginative, but it tells you what it is. <laughs> Probably has a good acronym there. Um, but the, the problem is space agencies and private companies are going to start building craft for the moon. Mm-hmm. And if there's no agreement, everybody's going to solve the problem independently. Yeah, they'll take their own watches. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I mean, we've already seen what disparate unit systems does to Mars exploration. So... Mm-hmm. Planning ahead is is not a bad idea, but yeah. I, I just love the concept of moon time zones because you know there'll be the Australian time zone, the unlucky one where everybody you know communicates well, it depends through which state yeah. you're from. Exactly, yeah, I'm in the South Australian time zone. I'm in Queensland, just not quite like Victoria in this as <laughs> Well, we're closer to the equator. We don't need it, right? It's always it's always yeah. bright up here. <laughs> yeah, that could be complicated. I think for me, I'd like the time zone that keeps my circadian rhythm exactly the same as it is on Earth. That would be my yeah. You know, make the day the same damn length so that I don't have to, you know. So no one says to me, "Look, you've only been working for seventy-two hours. You've got days to go yeah, before days. your day's over. You're on the moon." Yeah. yeah, we need to keep that consistent. It's tough stuff, though. It's yeah. tough science. Yeah. Anyway, all right, folks, we're going to take a break for some station announcements, and when we come back, we'll have our first guest in the studio from the University of Melbourne. See you in a sec. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go. In the studio with us now is Professor Stephen Livesley. He's from the Ecosystem and Forest Sciences, part of the University of Melbourne. Stephen, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Shane. It's good to have you in here. Now, you're, you're an urban ecosystem researcher. That's correct. When you woke up one day, you were 16, <laughs> is, that, is that something that's visible as a, as a pathway early on, or is it something you sort of found later? No, I was not aware of it when I was going through university at all. And I, I started out in uh, forest science or mm. agroforestry as well. Yep. Um, I started in the urban sphere about 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, and it was urban forestry 
So right. this is take so coming from a forestry background. Yep. Oh, it's going to be going to be very similar, but um, the way we manage trees and green space in the city is very different. There's there's a whole lot of passion out there. Um, mm. There's a lot of opinion. Um, yep. But also really important, tangible benefits that we get from the vegetation in our cities. I'm really glad I made that transition yeah. from plantations and forests into the urban sphere. Yeah, yeah. is it is it the uh, the sites of the work a little better, or do you, do you miss the old uh, days back out there when you're out in the wilderness? What I do miss, I, I miss going up to the savannah. I right. had the opportunity of working up uh, near Catherine and then out of Darwin. That was a great time, but. Um, what I think is we're, there's a huge awareness now, especially in the, the younger students, about the benefit that the green space mm. and vegetation provides. COVID has alerted everybody to their neighbourhood yeah. and the values and the benefits that we can get just by walking down the street. Yeah. And yeah. hearing the birds sing first thing in the morning, you know, that's gold. Yeah. And so if you don't have the habitat for those sorts of things, then, you know, we, there's something we need to do. Yeah, I, I, I live in an area where uh, one of the things I noticed changed when we were in the, lock, we're in the lockdowns, you know, which I know none of us really enjoyed, but one of the things that was great for me was I would often be woken up by birds instead of the engines of 747s. Because exactly. <laughs> no one was flying, so those things are out. Um, but those bird sounds, you know, I kind of thought, oh, if I've woken up on whole day somewhere because that's what we traditionally city folk would you know compare to times when we were away when we we're on holidays but if we can get that in the city then it's so much healthier for us absolutely i think so now in terms of the, the green spaces one of the things that seems pretty common to me around the city is that there's a lot of turf you know a lot of and in fact these days i think some people are replacing that with plastic turf which is probably even worse but in in terms of the green spaces i mean what what sort of variability is there in terms of quality and how, how would you sort of rank that i mean you know if i'm there and there's a, a big open park but it's mainly turf i mean how does that compare to you know some of the nice gardens around around the city of melbourne well I mean, it depends on your perspective. Uh, uh, somebody from a biodiversity or cons conservation perspective will really want to have that diverse vegetation with lots of different mm. uh, shrub layers and habitat pockets. But the simple fact is that we also need these green spaces for amenity, for exercise. Yep. And that's never going to change. And what we're looking at now is, is how can we um, maximise these large green turf spaces for other benefits uh, in addition to um, amenity and exercise and sport and recreation. And this is – the great opportunity has come around because Australia leads the world in, in capturing stormwater runoff. Okay, mm. Not a lot of people recognise this, but Australian cities have gone a long way towards – directing the rainfall that lands on roofs and car parks and roads into storage systems. Mm. The city of Melbourne, the, the actual CBD area, has many examples of this, and now it's spreading out into the inner suburbs. And that provides an opportunity to, to store water under the green space or next to the green space and use it not only for amenity irrigation, but we can be responding to heat waves mm. by, by cooling that pocket of green space for the, for the humans, the local residents to use it, but also the biodiversity I was talking about. They don't like it too hot either. Okay, So providing that, that timed, short period of time irrigation cooling benefit is, some, is a way we should be changing the, our perception of what the green space can do for us. On the outer suburbs, we've got different problems to consider. Um, there's the wildfire threat. You know, mm. People on those outer suburbs, fringe suburbs, maybe grass fires or whatever, they're, they're very concerned about that. 
do the same thing, store the water. You can use it to reduce the flammability of the green spaces and the vegetation mm. to reduce the anxiety that people have associated with that with yeah. the green, green vegetation. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you know, I I, I think of my own house and where we have and I've, i feel pretty sophisticated because my toilets flush off rainwater you know yep. and i think that's actually an upgrade from where i used to live where it was just for the garden you know mm-hmm. and so we're getting there but but in terms of the level of sophistication you're talking about is something that actually responds to weather data input so if we have a for example we have a 40 degree day coming up and it's not just for the the plants i suppose but but birds a whole lot making yep. that development is, is that happening anywhere in the city at the moment yeah, so from a human perspective, we've been working with Southeast Water down in Aqua Rivo, which is a part of uh, Lyndhurst. It's mm-hmm. on, on the edge of the city. And that they've developed a, a 400-plus residential area that is top, top of the range. You know, it's eight-star sustainability. And what, part of what they've been trying to do is to make use of the water and time it time the irrigation of private green spaces, your backyard, your courtyard, so that when the Bureau says it's 30 degrees or Mm. 32 degrees the irrigation kicks in the misting kicks in so that your private space is still usable and it's cooling you know your pocket that you live in and that i think that smart irrigation and smart um, internet of things approach is the way that we're going to go not only in the private realm but obviously it's already happening in the public parks there's a great example from sydney um, a colleague of mine, Sebastian Farish from Western Sydney University, is doing this with a collection of other universities and practitioners to a huge park that is being intelligently smart sensor controlled to maximise the cooling benefit in that in that Sydney area. Mm-hmm. It's incredible stuff. I mean, I, I think about some of this, and listeners of the show know I'm a bit obsessed with the weather. You know, I'm, I'm checking it seven or eight times a day at least, you know, making sure I know what's going on. I'm British. We're obsessed with the weather <laughs> as well, don't worry about that. <laughs> and, you know, we're well, Melbourne too. I think you really got to check it seven or eight times a day, otherwise you're not up to date because it keeps yeah. shifting. But, you know, so I'm, I'm very on top of, well, I should – you know, water my garden or whatever, you know, prior to tomorrow, because tomorrow is a big heat. You know, it's not actually Melbourne, sorry, but you know, these days where the big heat days are coming up. But, you know, if we could input that data in an automated way, because I, I do appreciate that most people don't have my little level of obsession with the bomb app and so forth. But, you know, if we could input that, that would be quite something. What, what, what about, you know, one of the things I'd love to see is some of our universities, you know, you're at University of Melbourne, setting up an exemplar of of exactly this it's a big area it's a squiddy so square sort of city block yep and a lot of roof area a lot of beautiful gardens is there the possibility that we could be setting up you know exemplars that people could look to and say oh wow you know that's that's how this would work yeah well i mean the aqua Revo that i mentioned is one case in mm. point we're, we're about to start another project uh, donnybrook road so right in the northern suburbs and that's that's working with the horticulture industry to do it on private space again and that's that's to for cooling benefits for um, stormwater runoff benefits because we don't our streams are biodiversity hotspots, and the less runoff that we push into them and keep on those private properties, the better it is for the stream ecology. And also, we're, all, we're also going to be looking at nature connection, and all of this is going to have, apart from the nature connection, have an element of intelligent sensors to mm. detect it and control it. You, you, you mentioned earlier about the biodiversity and, and using that, but one really exciting thing that's happened in the last five years is, is in response to the, the tragic uh, mass deaths of flying foxes right, yeah. all the way from Queensland, New South Wales, and, in, and uh, in our own backyard in Yarra Bend Park in Adelaide as well. And different researchers and local governments all over Australia are now using either smart irrigation 
or smart misting to, to, to cool those colonies at those critical times. And it's mm. all about what you're saying about interacting with the Bureau of Meteorology to switch it on at the right time and then monitor how cool it gets in those pockets, those colony trees, and then click it on again when you need it. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Sounds really interesting. Um, you mentioned that you've got really good engagement with agencies like um, Southeast Water and, and universities and other collaborators. But what about um, developers? Are they really wanting to come on board and think about when they're, other than those examples you mentioned, generally, do developers, um, are they keen to engage um, with you on these sorts of things and build all of these factors into new developments in cities um, and, and uh, you know, high um, urbanised areas? Yeah, so in the, in the inner, inner city areas where you've got high-rise buildings, multi-storey dwellings, they're definitely looking at uh, green infrastructure. So that's the uh, green walls, green facades mm. and green uh, roof areas for, um, you know, for amenity value, for people to relax and connect with nature. In the outer suburbs, we're starting to work with uh, developers such as Lend, Lease and Mervac. Yes. And it's for different reasons. It could be for biodiversity habitat in these new large residential suburbs. A lot of them are close to high-value nature reserves, national parks, regional parks. If they can provide some habitat buffer for those, that's awesome. That's mm-hmm. really a, a really smart thing to do. And with the with the, the Mervac group, we're looking at those ecosystem service benefits for cooling. Those outer suburbs are dense. There's mm. huge impervious covers, dark roofs. Mm. From a climate change adaptation perspective, it's pretty. It's a pretty dumb thing. Pretty to be nasty. Doing. Yeah. But the Victorian government has intelligently put in a, a perspective of trying to get 30% canopy cover in the public realm. So that's in the streetscapes and the parks. It's a really. It's challenging to achieve that. It's not easy to achieve that, and as yet, we're not really close. Yeah. But we'll. People will still keep working on that. City of Melton has had a great initiative to passively irrigate their street trees. They've mandated it for all developers, mm-hmm. and a colleague of mine, Chris Zota, is heavily involved in demonstrating that and quantifying that. Okay. With regards to uh, other aspects, I think um, the ability to to use water in those areas has to change. We have to be using both passive irrigation and active irrigation to make those outer suburbs work. Developers have hit a bit of crisis of their own. Um, we've all heard about it. Mm. Costs going out of the, out of the stratosphere with regards yeah. to building new houses. And there's, the, Mervac and other developers have said there's actually a, a, a palette or a need to appeal to a new market where they actually don't want the McMansion. Mm. They want a small, humble abode on their outer suburb plot. That means there'll be space for a courtyard, a garden. Other stuff, yeah. Yeah, and so if we can change the way the village builders are thinking about filling the entire plot, Mm. and you have a a little oasis of a backyard, maybe with some vegetation, with a misting system, Mm. with green space that can attract habitat, biodiversity to you, wouldn't that be gold? That yeah. would change the experience of people who live in those outer suburbs. Yeah, Absolutely. and I think we we need to move into that scenario too, where we think about the sorts of things we're planning and and, the, and what diversity is available there as well. And it's not just London plane trees. Yeah, you know, like it could be other things. I mean, I always think back to. You know, we, we've had guests on, even just recently, talking about the biodiversity in Antarctica mm-hmm. and how much of it, a lot of it is just within a few inches of the ground. You yeah. know, and like incredibly diverse lichen communities and other things where, you know, there's so much there. And I think, you know, let's whack this on our roofs. Let's do all sorts, you know, do different things than just 
let's just plant some London plate trees because they look great and they're fantastic in autumn. <laughs> but, you know, there's other things that we can do there as well. Stephen, it's a, it's a fascinating area. It's great to hear about all these projects going on. I mean, I just wasn't aware of this. I don't think many people would have been aware of it. So it's good to hear some of them are going on. Hopefully they'll spread and uh, we can continue and, you know, green more of our city, but also make sure it's actively utilising the water that we get and, and using that in a smart way. Thanks so much for being our guest on Einstein and Go-Go today. It's a pleasure. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest today. We're going to be talking about that elusive comet and whether or not we'll be able to see it. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, folks. You are listening to Triple R. Jeez, we've got a busy show today. We Jamming have. things in. Uh, good stuff, though. Uh, we have Dr. Sarah Webb in the studio. Sarah is an astronomer and decision support scientist from Swinburne University of Technology. Sarah, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm going to get you to move a little closer to the... Uh, I know you're an astronomer and you're used to big distances, <laughs> I but am. I need you two inches from that microphone. Thank you very much. Uh, now, first of all, we have... Before we get on to some of your stuff, because, you know, I know that's going to be interesting, but let's talk about this comet. <laughs> <laughs> so, comet C slash 2022E3. Yeah, not a catchy name, but it's the one it's got at the moment. That's uh, have right. Have we not bothered to name this one because it's not going to be around for long? Is that what's happened? I think secretly there's like a naming process happening because it genuinely takes very long amounts of time for comets to get their official name yeah. so i reckon in a year or two we'll be like oh remember that green thing it's now named this and then we can in fifty thousand years yeah. remind people its name yeah this is one of the things isn't it? this this comet has a very very big orbit compared yeah. to the majority of the comets we see right i mean is that is that true like most of the comets don't have orbits quite this large no most of the comets we can kind of predict and see on a couple hundred year basis mm. they're still big orbits but this one is like obscene big. It takes 50,000 years for it to go round and round. Yeah. Um, Amazing. Dumb question. No dumb uh, question. All our other comments, we have like multiple observations over their period, so we know yeah. 76 years for Hales. How do we know on the 50,000 year one? Is that an estimate? Is it, it is. Like, it's okay if it's 50,000 or 51,000 yeah. or 49,000, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's an estimate based on when did we first detect it and now how are we tracking it? How fast is it going? Uh, and where do we think she's going to go, basically? Mm. Yeah. yeah. And how does it compare in size to other comets? Is this like an average size comet? Is a, you know, what are we looking at? I think it's fairly average. I think the problem with comets is we don't have a full understanding of the population because there's mm. probably so many more that are still out there that have yet to come back in our modern day observations so for now we think she's kind of average but we can always be surprised when more things come in and we start to detect more comments yeah i'm still i'm i'm gonna try and hang around for Haley's <laughs> next run what is it 61 2061 i think so me too that's on my calendar 61 I let me, me just here. do the math carry the four shit i gotta yeah. almost get to 100 <laughs> It's going to be, um, you don't worry about, I'm going to live that long. There's no doubt. I'm just worried my eyesight won't be up to the challenge. So, yeah, I mean, you'll be okay. You'll be. Hopefully. Yeah, you'll be fine. Uh, so, in terms of, let's say, just for example, that uh, the sky spirits, as I call them, clear the clouds. They're kind to us. Kind to us yeah. over the next couple of days. Where should people be looking and what should they expect? So you should be looking almost to the direct north. So get a compass mm -hmm. out on your iPhone, look north. Yep. And you're going to be looking up just a little bit, maybe 20, 30 degrees. But what you're really going to be looking for is Mars. I know this sounds bizarre, but here mm. we go. So you're going to look to the sky. You're going to look for something that's bright red. That's Mars. That's going to be your friend. Okay. The comet's going to be sitting below that. So if you've got binoculars, first find Mars and then keep tracing your way down 
along that north line until you hopefully see the little green boogie comet. Hmm. And how how bright do you think it will be? Will it be visible by the naked eye or just binoculars? It, if it's visible by the naked eye, it's going to be just visible. It's about okay. the same as some of our faintest stars. Okay. Um, what time of the night or more early morning is yeah, good for this? So around 9 to 11 p.m. is probably your best time here in Melbourne. Yeah. Now, I understand it's already past its closest yeah. approach to Earth. Northern Hemisphere people, they get everything. <laughs> um, but but it's still pretty close. So, uh, you know, in terms of the next few days, is there an optimum time to be viewing? And where's the moon at the moment? Yeah, so the moon will be sneaking its way up. So it's going to be quite bright. So you do want to head away from the city. And probably on the 5th is going to be one of the better days. That's today. That's today, Oop. 5th or yeah, tomorrow well, night maybe. Right. So if the weather gods are kind go outside uh, but if you do have a telescope or big binoculars you might get luckier a couple of days yeah i'll get the telescope <laughs> there you go but i'm very afraid i'm very afraid of it getting wet <laughs> you have children just have them hold the umbrella well that's yeah you need idea. the clear umbrella that's yeah maybe well yeah, 30 degrees maybe I've, I've actually got a big big sort of uh you know beachy type umbrella i could put that up Whack a tarp on the side of my neighbor. Actually, I've got this sorted. Yeah, your neighbors aren't going to be any more surprised than your other stuff. Yeah, so. I got a, I got a scientist a, that lives next door. I've uh, got a hammer drill, some tarp, and a telescope. It's happening. It's going to happen. Now, um, so in, in what, what's your plan, Sarah? Are you going to head off uh, into the wilderness to try and get some dark skies? We were thinking about it. I was actually going to go try and buy binoculars today because right. I'm a bad astronomer who is very spoiled, and I use no- Big, big telescopes, telescopes for yeah. distant things. Yeah. So when something's close and nearby, I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared yeah. like you. So I'm going to go buy some binoculars and then maybe we'll drive out. Maybe we're thinking to the Dandenongs, like a little bit away from the city, somewhere nice. Mm. See what we can do. Yeah, Stacey's house. Oh. She's in the bush. I'm not in the Dandenong's though, but yeah. Other way, but yeah, you're still in a nice locale. I might be uh, might be coming yeah, up later sure. this evening, Stacey, and parking in your backyard. Comet party at mine. I know. And um, in terms of the, so in, in terms of, I, I suppose, what people can get away with, I think mm-hmm. just just relatively small sets of binoculars, yeah. cheap binoculars, can do the job, right? Yeah, yeah. Just like your general, you know, almost. The ones that you take maybe on a beach trip, like not mega big, just you know, cheapo binoculars. You should yep. that should give you enough to be able to actually see the comet. If you want to see its tail in detail mm. and you want to see the really bright colours, you're going to need a telescope, and you're probably going to need to be able to do a long exposure because our eyes we just get filled with so yeah. much of the ambient light, we won't be able to see the details. Yeah, but. cool. Now, one of the things I suppose people are always curious about with comets is that they often, well, at some point in their orbit, they chase their own tail. Right? Yeah, just. Oh, I've done this a few times, but from your perspective, what's happening there? Tell us what's going on. So, depends what's happening, but my favourite part about comments is when they leave that big, long trail of the tail. I'm not sure if this is what you're talking mm. about, but it, they can pass through their own tail again. So, we end up getting this scatter of debris. And when we get meteor showers, which we have a few throughout the year, what you're seeing is the bits that are left over from comments. Mm. Things that have come too close, they've disintegrated, let out dust, gas, water, ice, all of the stuff, and then it's landing on the Earth. So, what's great is hopefully we might be able to get some meteors from this in the future. That'd be cool. Now, let's talk about your week before we let you go, because you're doing some cool stuff there at Swinburne. One of the – well, there's a couple of things. One is the microgravity experiments, or as I like to call them, always falling experiments. (laughs) They are always falling. Always falling. The gravity is pretty pretty much the same on the International Space Station. It is. On the ground here, right? It is. If they weren't moving so quick around the the Earth, they would – 
field. Yeah. So they're constantly yeah. falling. Yeah. They're constantly falling, but they are in an orbit where they move so fast that the curvature of the Earth falls away before they get yeah. to it. Yeah, they're yeah, constantly cool. chasing the Earth the yeah. way it falls. Yeah. Trying to fall, trying exactly. to hit the ground, but they'll never do it. Um, so what, what sort of things are happening there? Because you've got um, there's quite a few uh, school kids and so forth involved yeah. in that project. Yeah, so we, want, uh, we run something called the SHINE uh, program and also our Space Challenge programs, and they're amazing. So we get grade 10 to grade 12 high school kids in. We teach them all about space science, space mm-hmm. applications, microgravity, and then we get them to either help us design an experiment to go to the space station, which we're about to launch one in the next couple months, or they get to analyze space stuff here on Earth, which is pretty neat. So we've sent yogurt up in the last year, um, and <laughs> okay. it tasted okay. It came back; it wasn't it wasn't too bad. We made yogurt in space, which was excellent. And then this year, we're trying to make microgreens. So something called alfalfa. You might have yeah. it scattered yeah. on your food. It's delicious. But we think this might be the thing that we eat on Mars when we eventually touch wood get ourselves to Mars, alfalfa is probably going to be the food that we eat the most. Wow, so, I normally flick that off. I know. I know. The astronauts are not going to have a great time for a yeah. while there. But. I had a rabbit and a guinea pig. That's what they used to eat was alfalfa was yeah. their treat. Yeah. You know? but, yeah. Well, that's good. And the, and the kids get to do this. Like, I, I think that's, that's wild that Australian students are getting to – you know, this isn't just – Oh, uh, you know, here's a, here's a piece we prepared earlier. They're actually the ones Helping preparing design. it, sending up, and then getting it back and doing exactly. the analysis. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we have a partnership with uh, Haleybury College, and their students help us. They basically design the experiment. We have some constraints because obviously you can't send some stuff up into space, mm. but we're like, what do you think's interesting? And they help present us with the ideas. That's it's very really cool. Why did they come up with yogurt? <laughs> <laughs> yogurt. It was actually a really cool kind of like brain map to get there so the twin experiment had just finished which was we had mark uh, and scott kelly the twin astronauts one went up one stayed on earth when they came down they figured out that scott's gut bacteria was so not as diverse as his brothers so he had lost diversity in his gut bacteria yeah Yeah. they didn't know why they think it's because you're not touching germs every day and you know helping your, your body get the things it needs and so one of the ideas is you need more probiotics how do you get them well, yogurt's yogurt. nice. Yeah. yeah. So that that was the thought process. Cool. Very like cool. It. Now, before we let you go, we've got to talk about these fast radio bursts that oh, you're, uh, you've been things. hunting. I mean, to me, this is like needle and haystack stuff. You've yeah. got to be looking in the right direction to see one. Do we know what they are? No. So every now and then, <laughs> there's just one of these really bright radio bursts mm-hmm. in the radio frequency, just mm-hmm. like we're using now, uh, from somewhere in the universe. Yeah, exactly right. And we don't know what they're coming from. Or where they're going to come from next? No, that's exactly right. So we know that they're extragalactic. We know that they're not within our galaxy. And we can tell that by how they get spread. So when you have long wavelengths like radio waves, they can get scintillated through dust and through gas. Mm. That happens when it passes through the Milky Way. So we know that they're coming from beyond us and probably really far away. The problem is we don't know what they are. We've only ever seen them in the radio. We don't have any other detections. They could literally be, there's like a list of 36 things they might be. Yeah. Everything from exploding stars to collapsing black holes to magnetars eating a star like it's crazy wow and i just got to check this because years ago i remember having a guest on the show and we were talking about a certain um, burst that was being found and it ended up being someone opening the microwave when the yeah when the when the microwave was running so if you, if <laughs> you don't, 
Yeah, yeah. And so if you, you open, if the microwave's running and you don't wait until it finishes and you open it partway through the mm-hmm. cycle, it was putting out this pulse. Was it at Parks they were picking that was this at up? Parks. Parks yeah. Observatory. See, my memory, I don't remember people's names from last week, but I remember this. And <laughs> I'm glad you asked. I wasn't sure if it was okay to ask about the microwave thing. No, it's I, totally yeah. okay. And so have we checked the microwaves? We've checked the microwaves. Now, the best thing about these is that we find them at a heap of different radio telescopes. Right. And they're not, they're not in that weird microwave. And they don't all have the same microwaves? They don't have, thank God. <laughs> but, yeah, it's something, though, that's yeah. really – that is an interesting thing because you might see something in your data that you think is incredibly interesting, you know, a Nobel Prize. Mm. And I think it goes to show how important really interrogating everything about your data and the environment where you take it. And I think that's an excellent example of how we've learnt. Yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah these well, we, and we had the PhD student who was doing that work on the show, and, you know, she, she's amazing. Like doing Emily a, Petroff. A, yeah, yeah, Emily Petroff and doing amazing work. But, you know, like this is something where no one seemed to be able to nut that out for a while. Yeah. And I don't know if Emily solved it or who solved it, but it was um, yeah, like she was she was the microwave hunter. Oh. Yeah. She's <laughs> that, must have been, that must have been quite a day when she's like, Oh my god, my, <laughs> my thesis is just about microwaves. What do we do? But um but you, as you said, the the light is modified by coming through gas yeah. layers that's in right. our galaxy. So we know it's coming from outside yeah, the galaxy. Yeah, it has to so come from that's outside the earth, outside yeah. the galaxy. Yeah. That that also makes their intensity uh, origin at least really high, right? I mean when you say yes. bursts they have to be like exceedingly bright for them to be able to be seen in the radio. Mm. And then also we think some of them have traveled literally halfway across the universe from wow. how strong they are wow. and what they're something called um, the, the, the dispersion measure. So how spread they are. It's, pretty pretty amazing and again they could be anything but they are helping us do science so they're helping us recently there was a paper that came out that weighed the entire mass of the milky way using these things wow excellent yeah excellent that's science. cool stuff now uh, obvious question is uh, so you're looking for these things yeah where, so- where do you point your telescope <laughs> How do you do that? It's really hard. So a lot of my PhD back in the day was trying to figure out how do we match telescopes up? So how do you have a radio telescope looking at one part and then Mm. can you have an optical telescope looking at the same time? And then you're relying on chance because a lot of these things only happen once as a couple repeaters, but again, they're a bit hard to catch. So it was all about trying to line up chance. And the way we did it was we had telescopes in Australia, in Chile, uh, and even in... um, uh, in Africa, looking at the same patch of sky, so we could try get as much information and in, did not solve the problem. It's incredible stuff. And look, we're almost out of time, but I have to ask because there's going to be questions. Um, gravitational wave detection, nothing connected to these think. either. No, we don't think so. There was a possibility that maybe they could be merging neutron stars, mm. um, but we're starting to move away from that idea at the moment. Yeah. God, it's wild stuff, isn't it? Wild it is. Stuff. It's magic. I'm going to phone up my friend Jocelyn Bell Bernal. Uh, you know, we talk regularly. We love Jocelyn. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, she'll know. She'll work it out. I hope so. <laughs> Finally she? get her Nobel Prize. Oh, let's not talk about that. Actually, well, you know, she's done better out of not getting it, I think, than getting it because everyone's aware of how inappropriate that system is. And, Absolutely. And as, as a woman, in her case, just being completely overlooked for what is one of the most extraordinary astronomical discoveries in the last 150 years. Yeah. So, you and know. in the astronomical community, we we credit her with that discovery. Yeah, like she she. In our eyes, she has that Nobel Prize. Yeah, the Pulsar. If anyone still owes one of those cars, that's where the name comes from. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the name comes from. But they're cool stuff, and they're uh, incredibly important objects in the universe. Well, uh, Sarah, thanks so much for coming in today. Uh, I hope you do get to see the comet 
because uh, part of me says that if you do, I will too. So, uh, <laughs> we're not, Fingers crossed. We're going to be looking in the same spot. Um, and uh, we'll get you back on to talk about more astronomy at some stage. That'd be great. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Sounds good. Folks, uh, that was Dr. Sarah Webb, astronomer and decision support scientist at Swinburne University of Technology. We're going to take a short break for some station announcements. And when we come back, Gracie over there hanging around in Texas, she's doing nothing on a Saturday night, is going to tell us about their noses. If you can believe that. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. Uh, it is 11.47 in Triple R land. I'm not sure what this is outside. I think it's the same time zone. Depends where you're listening, really, doesn't it? Uh, now Slightly we've got... different time on the moon. <laughs> yeah, we haven't sorted that one out yet. Now, Liv's doing our Twitter feed today, too, folks. So if you want to read everything that I say... Liv just literally puts it down word for word. Wait for that tweet. Here it comes. Exactly what I just said. Anyway, uh, Gracie, uh, you're going to tell us something about noses. What's going on? Yes. Has anybody heard of the nasal cycle? No. Before? No. No. Other so cycles, yes. A lot of, yes, other cycles, yes. So a lot of people think we're breathing uh, out of both nostrils pretty equally. What if I told you that you're primarily only using one nostril? At any given time, typically. no way. Oh, would I, you believe me? I so want to be a right-handed nostril a right, person. I want to be a left-handed <laughs> nostril person. <laughs> you could be both. You could be both. So uh, you can actually test this uh, by holding up your finger underneath your nose, so kind of like a fake mustache, um, and then just breathe for a second. I don't know. It's touch and go. So can you, close. This can you, this can you com- feel if you breathe out of compelling primarily radio. one nostril right now or a different one? A little bit, maybe. I I'm a bit, I'm a bit congested. I, I think I'm a little uneven, actually. Yeah, I actually right now I can only feel um, air coming out of my right nostril, and I can hardly feel anything coming out of my left nostril. And this is typical. I don't have any like uh, sinus infection or anything else going on right now. Um, and this is actually typical for about eighty percent of the population does this. Um, so you almost always have a much greater airflow coming out of one nostril than the other. Of course, um, this is also because uh, basically one side of your nose is getting congested while the other one's getting decongested, right? So as you, if you think about it as like percentages, um, as you're like 100% congested on one side and 100% decongested on the other, as they kind of switch places, you'll get kind of this time period where they're both at 50%, right? So you get kind of an equal airflow out of both nostrils. But for most of the time, you're only primarily using one. Hmm. Stacey, you um, got a question? Oh, no, I was going to ask about that cycle. So you're primarily using one side, but if it's a cycle, does it yeah, oscillate between the two, which I think you have answered Yes, yes, it does. And it oscillates about every four to eight hours. What's interesting is uh, pretty much everyone is different. Um, And this also varies a lot with age and your posture. So actually, a lot of people think this is why we switch sides when we sleep as well. I love the fact that, as you said, that everyone in the studio is set up straighter. (laughs) (laughs) Posture? That's a magic word. All I have to say is posture. Yeah, everyone just set up straighter. sad. Especially Liv. Like a light bulb. She's the youngest one in the room. She'd be ashamed of herself. (laughs) (laughs) yeah this one actually depends more on lying posture so how you lie uh particularly at night um so like i said even if you're not a side sleeper even if you sleep on your back your head still kind of tends to turn to like either the right or the left side right and so um a lot of people think that this is why we actually uh switch sides while we're sleeping 
um, because that four to eight hour cycle is getting up, right? And it's expiring. Um, and gravity is kind of pulling down the congestion on your nostril side that's touching the pillow, essentially. Oh, that's, I've never thought about that. That's a wild idea. I thought it was just I was getting sort of nudged and woken up by my partner, and so I had to get out of there. I had to move, move the other side. That's if you're snoring and waking them up. <laughs> I, think not, I don't snore. Well, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not the right person yeah, to ask. The, Yes. Uh, and the cycle is actually controlled by the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus is the part of the brain that's responsible for a lot of other cycles, like our circadian rhythm. Um, getting hungry, things like this. Um, and people uh, with cervical spinal cord injuries, uh, the nasal cycle actually disappears, um, which is really interesting. Um, and it's also been observed not just in humans, but in animals and dogs uh, as well. So like dogs, rabbits, um, kind of like smaller mammals. So it's not just unique to us, which is interesting. Um, hmm. And so a little bit more uh, about the anatomy as well. So I don't know how familiar you are with Noses, nose anatomy in general. Well, I've become much more familiar with it when since I've been shoving sticks up it on a regular basis. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. yeah, you know because yes, we, we had uh, we had Eric, uh, Doctor Eric, on uh, you know maybe a couple of years ago now, and you know we talked about you know the go low go slow policy rather than you know people often shove the rat test up at almost a vertical angle, mm. and realistically, you're almost going in horizontal if you actually understand the anatomy there, which I, you know, I must admit right. before all this stuff happened, I didn't have a good feel for that. Right. So if you picture as you're um, kind of pushing the swab up your nose, so as you're pushing it up, you're passing by uh, three what are called kind of like projections inside of your nose. They're called turbinates. So they're not very creatively named. They're just called uh, superior, middle, and inferior uh, are the three. Mm -hmm. um, and these turbinates are basically like little bony projections that are coming out of the side of your nose. Um, and basically, it's covered with erectile tissue. So they actually fill with blood um, and then shunt blood away. So that's why one side is getting congested while the other side is decongested. Um, so it's actually, that's what creates the cycle is this uh, kind of erectile tissue. Getting filled with blood. Is, is that why we get blood noses quite readily? Is it that tissue that's bleeding? Um, I'm actually not sure about that. I have to look into it. Stacy's lost her <laughs> lost her shit here because of the erectile tissue in. So, give that, it, uh, <laughs> just give it new meaning to the term dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what happens when people um, with this nose situation take Viagra? Are there any side effects in the nose area? Does the nose get bigger? That's a that's a great question. I don't know about that. We need to I look would, into this. I would speculate that it does, but I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to mess with Stacey even more because she's non-functional at the moment. She she may have to leave this year. She's laughing so hard. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm glad. Yeah. I wish I could see her from here. That's yeah, so cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so a lot, a lot of people actually uh, kind of hypothesize that we can actually detect a greater range of smells with this, this nasal cycle system that we have um, because some chemicals actually bind to different receptors in the nose better under high airflow conditions, and then some actually bind better under low airflow conditions. So oh. if you have one side that's getting a high airflow and one side that's getting a low airflow, um, it's hypothesized that maybe that kind of helps us detect a wider range of smells. That's wild. That is wild biology, if that's yeah. true. Yeah, what's even wilder, actually, is there was a review, a literature review, published in 2019. 
so not that long ago, um, that says, quote, our understanding of the nasal cycle is still very poor. Those are the three words that they use, still very poor. So it's kind of amazing to me that, you know, it's this review was published in 2019 and we still don't understand a lot about the nasal cycle. Um, and it's actually really important in uh, things like uh, nasal surgeries. So I don't know if you've ever heard of like deviated septums yeah. or if you've yeah. ever heard of people having surgery for this. Um, so for the people that aren't familiar, it's basically when uh, the your nasal septum, which is basically the middle part of your nose, um, is kind of off to one side, making your nasal passage bigger on one side than the other. And this can cause a lot of problems uh, like sleep apnea, high blood pressure. Um, it's even been connected to things like um, heart problems as well um, and headaches even um, just because of uh, kind of the airflow that you're getting um, and the obstruction of your nose as you're inhaling. Um, and the surgery to correct that is called septoplasty. And the goal is basically to improve uh, your nasal breathing. Um, but the success of the surgery is measured by how much airflow there is in each nostril. Um, and they're bas they basically want to see if they've improved it, right? So they could do this with an MRI or questionnaires or different types of equipment that could measure your nasal airflow. But, of course, they don't schedule this around your nasal cycle, right? Right, yeah. So it's, it's kind of difficult for physicians and clinicians to actually know was the surgery successful or was it just in a different part of their nasal cycle um, and it's really impractical to have people come in you know multiple times during the day to get an mri just to see you know what were the differences um, maybe they were in uh you know like a poor part of their nasal cycle to assess the surgery's outcome um, so there have been a few pieces of equipment that have been um kind of newer and up and coming to help try to assess this over a longer period of time so there's this new piece of equipment called the long-term rhinoflowmetry. I don't know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds impressive. Um, but you basically, it's like um, an air tube that goes around your nose and a little portable, um, almost like a uh, like an MP3 player that you can like clip onto your pants uh, and you just walk around with it and it'll actually measure your airflow over a 24-hour period. Um, so that's something that they've actually been integrating more uh, when they can into clinical practice to wow. assess um, these things after surgery. It's wild stuff, Gracie. Wild stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me that there's something that's so common. You know, 80% of the population experiences this and something that we're still kind of in the dark about, uh, you know, in the year 2023 yeah. as well. Yeah, something that you can easily access too. Like, it's not like we're talking about your pancreas. It's hard to get to. You know, the nose is right there. There's two holes, two access points. You right, exactly. And it has so many clinical implications, not just for, uh, you know, deviated septums, but all these different um, mm. things regarding like your sinuses, sinus issues, um, you know, chronic infections yeah. um, and things like this. So um, they're starting to do with this improved technology, some more research and some more uh, scientific studies uh, that are more long term and to be able to assess these things. Well, thank you, Gracie. That sounds amazing. I'm going to drop my nasal cycle into conversation over the coming week and just see how people react. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not uh, a bit tired today. My nasal cycle's a bit out of sync. I don't know why. <laughs> is it really your nasal cycle or is it a measure of the blood flow and the erectile tissue in your, na in your nasal, nasal cavity? Yeah, maybe. You know, I wonder if there's some acronyms you could make with that on yeah. the, the flowing system. We'll get Stacy working on it. She wants to work on the erectile dysfunction of the nasal area yeah. yeah thank you gracie great stuff excellent yeah thank you well folks we're almost out of time in a minute we're gonna to have to hand over to the team from eat it 
And uh, Cam and I are going to do something that we haven't done in a while. You go out for a pub meal? No, it's called the uh, the immediate uh, changeover of, of studios. I think uh, Matt, Stedman, and Cam are going to rush into this studio. We're going to rush out, and uh, you know, sparks will fly. You know, I, I saw his snacks out in the kitchen. There's a reasonable chance there's going to be croissant flying everywhere. Oh. <laughs> it could happen. Folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have your company. We will be back in a week's time. Uh, we've got some great guests coming on next week. Oh, good. Do we? People who do the pollen count. Ooh. I'm obsessed with the oh, pollen and, count. And Anders Barlow from yes. um, Material's Characterization Platform. He's doing yeah. all the helium ion imaging yep. of the pollen. Really cool yeah. stuff. Um, and it's not just pollen. It's all sorts of shit in their air, but we're going to be looking into that next week, which is going to be cool. And we have other guests and, and things happening. Have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And uh, we'll chat to you in about a week. Uh, thanks, Stacey, Ray, Liv, Gracie. You've all been great. See you, folks. See you next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.